Welcome to Conversations Live with Vicki St. Clair. Talk radio to inspire, inform, and stimulate. Bringing you enlightened discussions with authors, creatives, innovative business and health professionals, and ordinary people living extraordinary lives. Sharing their expertise and life stories. Making a difference one word at a time. Now, here's your host, Vicki St. Clair. And welcome, everybody. Welcome, welcome. Coming in the second half of today's show, we're joined by two food writers. We'll be talking about sipping teas that you've grown and harvested in your own backyard with Jody Helmer and imagining drunken ribs, trout with pickled peaches and cranapple moonshine with Lauren Angeluki. McDuffie, who's gathered recipes and stories from her Appalachian childhood. But first, I'm very pleased to uh, be joined by the author of The People Are Coming to Rise. Uh, the People Are Coming to Rise, the w- life, I think I've got this wrong here. Um, so we'll, I'm going to say that in just a moment because I think I typed it up wrong. I'm so sorry. <laughs> but um, he, he now has a new book out and it's released just this month. It's called The Man They Wanted Me to Be. And I think it's an important book, and it's already making waves. He is Jared, Jared Yates Sexton, the man they wanted me to be, again, the book. And he's a writer, political analyst, whose work has appeared in the New York Times, the New Republic, Politico, Salon, and more. He's the author of three collections of short fiction and a novel, and he currently serves as an associate professor of creative writing at Georgia Southern University. He joins us today with his latest nonfiction book, which is uh, both memoir and cultural analysis. Um, Jared Yates Sexton, welcome. And please tell us the name of the, of the book that I butchered. <laughs> sure, and thank you for having me. Uh, the book before was The People Are Going to Rise Like the Waters on Your Shore, a story of American rage, and it covered the uh, 2016 election and uh, the rise of Donald Trump to okay. uh, president. <laughs> you know, there's a difference. An F and a K makes all the difference. And I had put the <laughs> life, and I was like, that's not right. <laughs> okay, well, we got that one right. So we're going to talk today, though, about the new book, which is, um, I, as I said, very timely and I think a very important book right now. It's called The Man They Wanted Me to Be, Toxic Masculinity and a Crisis of Our Own Making. And um, you, this is based, as I understand, or sparked maybe by your popular uh, New York Times op-ed. Uh, the book is described as deeply personal, thoroughly researched. It's a memoir that examines how we teach boys to behave. And of course, ultimately, how we teach them to behave as boys is how they show up as men. So tell us why you wanted to write this. Um, absolutely. Um, and one, one of the reasons that I, I really felt like I needed to write this book was, um, you know, I, I started watching all of these um, moments of, of crisis that are happening around masculinity in America. Um, we're watching some really disturbing trends in terms of suicide, mental health, life expectancy. And there, there's, there's obviously something happening with that with mass shootings, with, with men lashing out and, and being violent and, and being toxic in their behavior. And it, it was obvious that there's something happening in our culture where men are not only harming the people around them, but they're harming themselves. And, and so I, I, I dived deep into it and uh, did the research and started connecting some of the cultural dots. And what I started to notice was that 
men in the way that they are taught to be and the way they are socialized as, as children um, leads to some really unhappy, unhealthy lives in which, uh, again, they continually hurt themselves and the people around them. And it, it doesn't have to be that way. They can live better lives and, and they can live longer lives. Mm. And because it's memoir, I mean, you, you do um, some analysis in here, too, and you share some history of how we got here. Um, but because it's memoir, I think it really puts a very personal spin on this. It, why did you want why did you choose to do it this way? Well, I, I think one of the ways that the men need to get better in this country, particularly, is they need to take a long look at themselves, not just where they're coming from, but who they've become. And with me, I, I grew up in rural Indiana. Um, my family are factory workers, they're miners, they're laborers. Um, I come from a very, very conservative background, uh, a patriarchal background where men are in charge of the house and you know, women take care of the children and cook the food and wash the dishes. And what I experienced in my childhood was a lot of dysfunction. Um, I had a lot of abusive father figures. Um, I actually had a neighbor who, who was actually murdered by a group of men, and, and my mother was harassed and stalked by men, some really awful things. But what I always came back to when I started studying my past is all of the men responsible for these actions, these abuses and crimes, um, were either uh, economically insecure or personally insecure. And as a result, what they did was they overcompensated their masculinity, they mistreated women, they mistreated children, and they actually lashed out because they have been taught over their years that they're not able to be emotional, they're not able to express themselves, they're not able to communicate their inner turmoil, and because they're not able to do that, they lash out because that's what men are taught to do, that the only appropriate emotional responses are anger and violence. And, and that has some really horrific uh, uh, consequences. Mm, you do share some facts in the book um, that you say unchecked toxic masculinity um, is one of the biggest threats to American women alone. And uh, statistics show that one out of every five will be sexually assaulted, women that is. Uh, women make up 91% of all rape victims and upwards of 1,600 American women were murdered by men in two, 2015 alone. And, and, of course, most of those men we know, right? That's right. And, and one of the things that we always end up saying is we'll, we'll say things like this is a biological thing. Men are more aggressive and violent, and it's a biological thing. And people always link back to testosterone. They throw up their hands and they say, what can we do about it? But the truth is that that violence and that aggression actually leads to the increase in testosterone. So what we're actually seeing is a societal construction that um, doesn't need to happen. Men don't need to behave this way. And quite frankly, this problem that, that we sort of throw up our hands about and say there's nothing to do about it, whether or not it's um, violence or murder or assault, these are things that we can prevent simply by, you know, educating men and raising them to be better. These are things that we can actually control and we can actually improve. And the moment that we start looking at it that way, the, the faster that we can have a better society. Yeah. Um, you talk of being a young child and not feeling like you fit in, and that got worse when you went to high school. You thought it would maybe would get better, but it actually got worse when you went to high school. Um, tell us what that was like for you and, and how you felt different. Sure. Um, I, I was a... a a really um, what they would call a soft boy. I, I was I was very imaginative and I expressed myself and I was very creative. 
Um, and I always felt like some way that I had become like uh, a traitor to my gender. I had done something wrong and there was something inherently wrong with me, which is actually one of the things that happens with masculinity, particularly the old patriarchal ideas of masculinity. All men feel like they are doing something wrong, like there's something inherently wrong with them or faulty with them, because masculinity tells us that we have to be invincible, that we can never show emotion, that we can never express ourselves. But that's completely artificial. These, you know, these are these are expectations that no one can live up to. So men actually start to loathe themselves. They start to really dislike themselves because they feel like they've done something wrong, like they fall short of the bar. And so what they do as a result is they overcompensate for it. They act more macho. They act more aggressive. They treat people worse. And and those things all come from the the fact that we all feel like in some way, shape, or form that we're coming up short of our expectations when those expectations are completely false to begin with. Yeah, and you say this is something that that all men feel. I mean, even those who are out there and the ones we consider, you know, to be jocks and knuckleheads and whatever. I mean, are you are you including them in that? Absolutely, I am. I mean, men have this terrible weight on them where they feel like they can never, ever expose any type of weakness. And, and you know, anybody who has a member of their family, a man who is excessively masculine, who is always boasting or always bragging about themselves or behaving in this toxic masculine way, knows that deep down in the heart of them that they're really insecure. That's when they behave this way. That's when they boast the most. That's whenever they, they have all this swagger is when they are the most insecure. And so even the men out there who you would consider to be very, very macho or very, very masculine are inherently insecure at the heart of them. And, and that is the way that they overcompensate is, is by, um, you know, overperforming their gender roles. And you say this gets worse uh, when you get to like university level sports, because that's, uh, you know, not a place where you can show any kind of weakness or vulnerability at all. Exactly. And we've seen some really tragic um, consequences of that. Anybody who has played um, particularly American football knows that there's a culture of, of not just bullying, but of being pushed too hard, of having to be too masculine. And that's actually led to a lot of deaths when players are having to push themselves beyond their limits, when they're becoming exhausted and they're not able to take breaks, when they're pushed to the point of physically breaking. And I personally, I played football, and I would play to the point of blacking out, whether or not it was from thirst or from injury. And I would do so because the expectations on me were so high and the situation was so dire that I would have rather died than, have, than to have shown myself to be weak. And there's a lot of men who put themselves through that, and it's, it's incredibly dangerous. Yeah. You say that by the time you were 18, um, you say, I'd resolved uh, to live outside of the paradigm and had decided masculinity with all its warts and foibles was something I could simply opt out of. But uh, you say what you didn't know then was that uh, it's you just can't do that. That's exactly right. Um, I actually, when I was um, going to college, I studied a lot of feminist theory. I looked into the idea of the patriarchal uh, construction. I knew what all of it was about, and I thought somehow or another, because I had always felt outside of it, that I was cured of it, so to speak. But even later on, um, in later years, whenever I would have moments of personal crisis, and I would become personally insecure, I would find myself unconsciously reacting by overcompensating. I would do the things that I had always thought were completely fake and false and awful. But that is one thing that happens with men, is this construct is with us 
from the very beginning of our lives. Um, some of our first social interactions are socialization towards masculinity. And so when we have these moments of personal crisis, even if we know better, even if we, we are totally against the idea of practicing this, we still fall back on it because that programming is really, really strong and it's, it's ever-present throughout society. Yeah. So you went from what you call uh, a sensitive misfit boy to, to a drunken man. You were rebelling and went through this uh, opposite stage, if you will, of how you'd lived before. What was the turning point there for you in, in, in stopping that and trying to you know, be who you were? Yeah, I, I went through a period of time where I definitely definitely played a character. There was a persona that, you know, I started dressing like all of the men from my uh, childhood who had abused me, all the men that I had always felt like that turned up their nose at me and felt like I had, had failed at being a man. I started playing this character who would drink and, and run around and, and put himself and others in danger. And what actually happened, um, the big turning point for me was I actually got pulled over uh, one night while I was drinking and driving. It was incredibly dangerous and incredibly stupid. And I, I still remember doing it and feeling almost proud of myself for taking my own life in, in my own hands. And I got pulled over by a police officer who, um, there's no other way to put it, he took pity on me and kind of told me, you know, that I was playing with my life and I was playing with, um, with my future. And, and that made a difference. It made me start to question exactly what had happened. And I, I don't think that if I would have been pulled over and if that um, officer hadn't taken pity on me and, and taken the time to take care of me, and which is a moment of great privilege, actually, I don't think that I might be here today. I might have died already because I was definitely taking chances that were absolutely absurd. And I was doing it to, to prove something to myself and I think to prove to other people. Right. How, what a difference one person can make in somebody's life, right? It could have been, it could have gone totally the opposite way. Oh, it could have ruined my life. I mean, you know, um, and I was, I was in graduate school at the time. I had my entire future ahead of me and I was taking these stupid risks. And I was doing it simply so people would see me doing it, and which is what a lot of men do is they'll put their own lives on the line. Um, they'll abuse drugs. They'll abuse substances. Um, they won't get help for themselves. They'll revel in self-harm. And, and what ends up happening is they shut themselves off and they put themselves in danger. And that's one of the reasons why men live shorter, unhappier lives is because they're constantly trying to prove something to themselves and the people around them. Right. So I want to talk a bit about the relationship or a little bit more about the relationship between your dad and yourself, because he was undoubtedly abusive uh, to you and to your mother, uh, tried keep kidnapping you at one point. Um, I mean, there were lots. Of, he wanted you and yet he didn't want you, it seemed, in, in some ways. And um, was that because you were so different, do you think? Yeah, my dad was really uncomfortable with me for about the first 20 years of my life. Um, I, You know, he... He even told me later on, and the people in my family would tell me later on, that he didn't know what to do with a, a, a creative, expressive, you know, young son. Um, he actually lived only about three blocks away from me, and I saw him, you know, only on the occasional holiday there for the first 20 years. But then eventually, when I got into my 20s, um, we started actually talking. We started running around, we started drinking and, and, and using drugs together, and we got closer, and over time what happened was, he started opening up to me, and he admitted to me as we got closer that, you know, he had always felt these expectations. He had always felt the weight of masculinity on him. And he started actually opening up to me emotionally and intellectually. And weirdly enough, he changed. Um, it, it didn't happen overnight. It didn't happen over a couple of days. But 
over a couple of years, he suddenly became a very open, emotional, intimate person. And what I watched happen with him was he, he completely changed who he was and how his life worked. Um, unfortunately, he uh, engaged in some other masculine behavior, which is not going to a doctor and not seeking um, you know, health checkups. And he died way too early at the age of 59 from um, diabetes. But in those last 10 years, um, he definitely changed. And I think, I think his value of life went up as he was able to have real relationships, real conversations, and, and was able to escape from the, the jail of masculinity that a lot of men live in. Right. Do you have an inkling on what, um, what was the catalyst for that change? Well, I think with him, and this is the case with a lot of men, um, unfortunately we act as unwilling jailers to each other. Um, you know, a lot of men never have real conversations. Right. Uh, this is one of the reasons why sports is so popular. Men will go watch sports and never actually talk they to one another. They just have to grunt, have... grunt about it, right? <laughs> right. And, and so, you know, having actual conversations where men talk about how they actually feel, they suddenly realize they're not alone. And when men realize they're not alone and that other men feel these expectations and that they feel scared and that they aren't always invincible, they suddenly realize that there's another way to live. And I think when my dad realized I felt like that, he felt free. And I think once you feel free, that's an intoxicating feeling. And I think it's a lot happier life to be able to have this intimacy and these relationships. And I think he realized that over time. And I'm really, really happy he did. So you talk about um, how all of this toxic masculinity convinces people, men early on in their lives that they deserve to be privileged and deserved to be entitled. And we're seeing so much of this today, especially in the political arena, but um, but it's permeating everywhere. And so um, what is the solution? How do we start turning some of this around? Well, the first step in all of this is simply realizing that it's, it's not natural. Um, you know, a lot of people always consider this, and, and even women will say this, so particularly in my family and where I come from, they'll say it's the way it's always been. And they just kind of look at it as if this is an organic uh, way of being. But the moment that we start questioning it, and we take a look at masculinity, it starts falling apart, right? Like so much of masculinity is about being strong and being confident, but there's so much of it where men know that they're not confident. They know that it's coming from this moment of insecurity. So the moment we investigate it, it starts to fall apart. And it's really important right now because masculinity is um, traditional masculinity, particularly American traditional masculinity, does not work anymore in the economic environment or the social environment. The things that reward are rewarded now are um, empathy and cooperation and, and, and communication. And these are things that men are taught not to do. And so they're not only hurting themselves socially, they're not even hurting themselves health-wise, they're hurting themselves economically. And so they have everything to gain from learning a new way to be and to expressing themselves. And so I think once we start realizing that this is an artificial construct and realizing that it's actually holding people back, I think that's when men will start to come out of their shells a little bit. And like I said, it's an intoxicating feeling to realize that you don't have to be perfect and invincible all the time because it's not real. And I think that once we start looking at that, the whole thing starts to fall. Right. Um, I want to just read something you wrote here. You say, um, because you got better, because you uh, felt that you'd cured yourself of toxic masculinity, if you will, um, you thought you were, it was like somebody administered a vaccine, that you were free of the disease. But like so many other men, that delusion 
was the heart of my problem. How so? Well, that, that's the thing, is all men who have grown up in a patriarchal society, and that means all men in America, really, because it's, it's everywhere. It's in our culture. It's in our interactions. It's, it's there from the moment that we're born. Um, men who know about it and who are against it, even men who are avowed feminists, even men who are, you know, uh, dyed-in-the-wool liberals who fight this stuff all the time, it does not change the fact that it's always there in the background. Um, it's as simple as, you know, in post-recession world, we're seeing a lot of uh, uh, differences in terms of men and women and how much money they're making and, and how they're progressing in their careers. It's as simple as looking at, at how the chores on a house are divided up. It's as simple as how you talk about candidates for office or how you talk about possible hires at your job. And men need to have a moment now where we investigate why we do the things that we do and, and even think about everything that we say and how it will affect the, the people around us. And so the moment that we get comfortable and we think that somehow or another that we're cured of this thing, it starts creeping up. And I think that's where, you know, you see a lot of people who um, claim to be feminists or claim to be against these things, they end up performing these behaviors because they think that they've been cured. Right, right. I want to talk about a conversation you had with your dad uh, to round us up here. Um, you say he went off on a rant. He was talking about men. He was talking about America and how they were inextricably linked. And he said that after all that loneliness, all that misery, all that pretending to be something he never was, he wished he could go back in time and talk to himself in basic training and let his younger self know he had nothing to be ashamed of. Uh, he said, I've lost too many years I hate what I was. Honest to God, I do. And getting to talk like this makes me hate it all the more. It's very sad, especially since he died so young. But tell us a little bit more about that conversation and what it meant to you. Yeah, that was one of those moments. And, and again, you know, I always thought that my father was just sort of the, the pinnacle of masculinity. Um, you know, he would go everywhere wearing his Marine Corps hat. You know, he would spend all of his time watching sports or, you know, reruns of war movies on TV. But it turned out actually that he had left Vietnam. He had left basic training before he had to go to Vietnam. He was terrified of it, and he was always so insecure and so ashamed of that fact. And what actually had happened was he had built up this character for himself, this armor he could wear around, and that armor had kept at bay everyone that he cared about. These are marriages. These are siblings. These are people that that he loved and wanted to be close to, but he couldn't because he had to protect this armor. And so I, that conversation really laid bare a lot of the problems with traditional masculinity, which is while men are maintaining this character, while they're maintaining that armor, what they're doing is, even if they're not being abusive, even if they're not assaulting people, there's an emotional intimacy that's missing, and, and you know, that, that isn't normal and it's not natural. And I know for my father, he told me he had been so lonely for 20, 25 years before we had that conversation. And, and that's just a really tragic thing, that men feel alone in this armor, and they want to get out, and, and I think they're looking for any way possible to get out. But society always keeps them at bay and always keeps them in that armor until someone reaches out and has that intimate moment. Yeah, it's uh, it's. I found this very eye-opening. Um, I really did because I, I did grow up with macho men, but they also had very sensitive side. They were all artists and expressed feelings and had somewhat artistic temperaments. So um, it was it was really eye-opening for me, Jared. 
Um, and of course, you you dispo- you expose in here the effects of toxic masculinity, including depression, suicide, misogyny, and a shorter lifespan, which we kind of glossed over. But um, there's are a lot of reasons that people should read this book. Final thought you'd like to leave them with today? Well, I I, I just wish that that people who you know might be hearing about this, who are uh, whether or not it's insecure or a little bit wary to give this a try. Um, I, I, this isn't about getting rid of masculinity. This right. isn't telling men that they can't be men. Men can still be masculine, but, you know, at the end of the day, they can still enjoy intimacy. They can still take care of themselves. And they, they can take care of their loved ones. And I think they have the world to gain. It's an economic, political, and a social thing. And I, I think individuals might, might feel a lot better if they'll take this chance. Thank you so much for being with us. Really appreciate it. Thank you so much. My guest, Jared Yates Sexton, his book, The Man They Wanted Me to Be. And you can find out much more about Jared and his work at jysexton.com. All right, please stay with us. We'll be right back. You're listening to Conversations Live with Vicki St. Clair. Parkinson's disease affects as many as one million people in the United States. At the Parkinson's Disease Foundation, it's our mission to beat this disease. To learn about the Parkinson's Disease Foundation, or if you want to help support our work, Visit our website, pdf.org, or call us at 800-457-6676. In the Northwest, contact the Northwest Parkinson's Foundation at nwpf.org. Hi, I'm your host, Smokey Cole Bear. Filling in for Smokey, because after 75 years of... Only you can prevent wildfires. Turns out there's much more to say. Nearly 90% of wildfires are caused by us humans being careless, dumping our used barbecue coals willy-nilly. Guess the song was wrong. We did start the fire. That's why I respect Mother Nature and her trees, whether coniferous or new car scented. Brought to you by the U.S. Forest Service, your state forester, and the Ad Council. Let's see if I... I guess that... (sighs) This just isn't working. Knowing you have a great idea for a book is one thing, writing it another. So what's stopping you? Maybe you can't find time. Maybe you don't know where to begin. Maybe you wrote a couple of chapters, then disappeared down a rabbit hole. Or maybe you'd rather someone else write it for you. Partnering with the right coach or ghostwriter can make all the difference between talking about your book and finishing your book. As an award-winning writer and strategic consultant, Vicki St. Clair's storytelling credits span from business, health, self-help, and memoir to New York Times and USA Today best-selling anthologies. Vicki partners with people just like you at the exact level you need, whether you need a little encouragement, editorial guidance, or full-blown ghostwriting and consulting services. If you're serious about telling the story you know is inside you, stop procrastinating. Let's get your story down on paper. Contact Vicki today. Email Vicki at VickiStClair.com or call 1-800-495-7617. See more about Vicki and her work at VickiStClair.com. Oh, 
Coming up June 3rd on Conversations Live with Vicki St. Clair. Successful people know it's important to recharge and reboot. If you find yourself delaying vacations because they're too stressful or you dread the amount of work you'll come back to, Aline Segura shares how to manage your time and energy to make sure you take a restorative break. And if fear of flying is your excuse, Captain Tom's helped hundreds of people overcome anxiety and panic attacks. Catch us live on Mondays at noon Pacific and again Fridays at 6 a.m. Find more details at conversationslive.net. Conversations Live with Vicki St. Clair. Inspiring, innovative, and a great place to advertise. Learn more at conversationslive.net. Get your daily dose of variety. Alternative Talk, 1150. And welcome back, everyone. Welcome back. Well, we're changing pace right now. We're going to talk about comfort food and storytelling. My guest is Lauren Angelucci McDuffie, and uh, she's a freelance writer. She's a food stylist and photographer and the creator of the Harvest and Honey blog. And she lives in Indianapolis, but she grew up in Appalachia. And uh, we're going to hear some of those stories today. Uh, welcome, Lauren Angelucci McDuffie. <laughs> Thank you so much for having me. My pleasure. The book is called Smoke Roots Mountain Harvest, Recipes and Stories Inspired by My Appalachian Home. And so I read that you used to feel sorry for those who didn't grow up where you did. Why? You know, I just think it's the most wonderful place. I mean, I grew up there and it seemed like, why would I want to live anywhere else? Everyone there is so nice. And it just, it was just a wonderful place to grow up. So, and I'm sad, I miss it to this day. My husband and I both grew up there and we always kind of reminisce and we're always happy whenever we get to take our own kids back. So yeah, I really appreciated getting to grow up there. Good. It's nice when you <laughs> appreciate where you grew up. So, yeah, I don't think I did quite as much at the time, but the older I got, the more that was definitely the case. Right. And so yeah. tell, tell us what are some of the things that you appreciated about it, apart from the food? What, what were some of the other things you appreciated? Well, it's just, it's a beautiful place. It's just kind of visually stunning. I grew up kind of right in the heart of the Blue Ridge Mountains in, um, in southwestern Virginia. So if you're an outdoors enthusiast, then it's kind of a perfect place to be. So there was never a shortage of activities and things to do and people who are always kind of game to do them with. Mm -hmm. So as a kid, that's just, that was that's pretty awesome. I, yeah, it was pretty awesome. So yeah. and these days, of course, your kitchen is far from the Blue Ridge Mountains. But you say it, your day to day approach to cooking is still largely influenced by your early years. So mm -hmm. what what's the biggest difference when you think about cooking, when you think about food, say, here in Seattle, if you've ever been here versus mm -hmm. um, where you grew up? You know, I think there probably are a lot of similarities, but um, the Appalachian influences that I think I pull from to this day still were things that I was really, I was taught by my mom and my grandma, and that's the whole waste not, want not mentality, which I use that expression throughout the book. And it's, and, and this honestly has become popularized all over now, but it has a real heart in Appalachian cooking. And that's just kind of the notion of using every bit of, of what you've got, whether it be using produce from root to stem, or if you're cooking proteins, using every every bit of an animal um, so that nothing is wasted, and then reusing food once you've cooked it and finding ways to repurpose it and just not letting anything go wasted. And that's something that I think, no matter where you're from, you can really kind of appreciate. Yes, definitely. 
Well, the book has it's it has your stories in it. It has seventy plus recipes in it. It's divided into seasons and seasonal menus. Uh, yeah. You talk about canning, fermenting, pickling, apothecary. Uh, you talk <laughs> about wine pairings. You have sections on spices, ingredients. Uh, I'm wondering how long it took you to put all of this together. So it took me about a year. And I think with a seasonal book, I really wanted to kind of authentically follow the seasons. Um, and so I traveled back to Virginia and to Kentucky each season over the course of a year so that I could photograph the landscapes and, and visit some of my favorite places that really inspired some of the different sections um, in the book. And also I had to wait for certain um, produce to become available. Like I share a recipe for, for ramps and those are really only available for about eight or nine weeks in the spring. So yeah, I kind of had to wait out a full year. So, so I, yeah, it took about a full, a full year to do the whole book. Yeah. Interesting. So you say is, is this is not a formal anthology on Appalachia, but, but it's a, a play, a way to honor your place, the place you call home. So tell us what, what, do you have a favorite recipe in the book? Oh, this question, you know, I feel like that changes all the time, sure. but there's, yeah, no, it does. On Friday, I went over to some friends, a friend's house, and we cooked a handful of recipes from the book, and we made one of my absolute favorites. And they're mussels um, cooked in a broth that, that's built on miso and moonshine and bacon, and they're really flavorful, and they're super, super delicious, and we really enjoyed those. Um, and I think that actually that recipe also kind of um, highlights what you just mentioned, that the book is not a, a formal anthology on authentic Appalachian cuisine. It's really a fusion of some of my interests um, today as a recipe developer and food blogger, just kind of blended with Appalachian influences. So in the case of the mussels, the moonshine <laughs> was that touch. So I don't yeah, know those... why, but I was surprised to find mussels in there. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, I love them. And they're one of my favorite things. I make them all the time. And I was excited to kind of get to share one of my favorite versions in this book. Right. And talking of moonshine, because you have several recipes. In there. Yes, um, I do. One of them that caught my eye was baked pork chops with crown apple moonshine. I thought like, Eric's licking his lips here. I don't know if that's <laughs> consciously or what. But... <laughs> that's a good one. Those are tasty. <laughs> and another uh, I saw pickled peaches and trout. Not definitely yeah. not your everyday uh, menu there. So what tell no. explain to us if you can what pickled peaches taste like. I love peaches. I do too. And that's another one of my favorites. So if you can imagine like a bread and butter pickle, um, which I think most people are familiar with, it's a little bit sweet, a little bit savory. That kind of applies to the peaches as well. But they're definitely a sweet pickle. There's some vanilla and some cinnamon going on. And they go with so many things. You can even build a pie around them. They're super versatile. They're delicious alongside meat or fish um, or on even a cheese platter. Um, so, yeah, that's one of my favorites yeah. as well. And another yeah. another that caught my eye um, is drunken short ribs with smoky Gouda grits and mountain mm. gremolata. I don't know what gremolata yeah. is. What is gremolata? It's kind of a it's – it's got – its roots in Italian cuisine. And it's just a little, a mixture of some garlic, lemon zest and parsley. So I've just got a little bit of a twist on that. And it, it's a way to kind of brighten up a heavier protein based meal. So in this case, the short ribs. Mm. So you have a section in the book uh, called larder and kitchen tools. And yes. uh, one of the things you say you always try to keep in your larder, again, something I'd not heard of black walnuts. Why black walnuts? 
Black walnuts are a pretty regional um, ingredient. They're popular in Appalachian cooking. And my, I had a great aunt who lived in Kentucky, and she had black walnut trees lining the drive to her house. And I just kind of, I think maybe for nostalgic reasons, I love black walnuts. I always think about that and her um, when I see them. And they do have a little bit of a different flavor than just a traditional walnut. Maybe not quite as easy to find, although I do find they're a little more readily available now. They're just a little sweeter, I think, so they're really nice for baking especially. Yeah. Yeah. You, you, you say um, in the section, how to use this book, another major tip is embrace the meanwhiles of a recipe. Yeah. What, what do you mean by meanwhiles of a recipe? So I find that if you take a few minutes to read an entire recipe before you start cooking, you'll notice that there are chunks in the instructions that will say, meanwhile, you can, you can address this part ah. of the cooking. So you don't necessarily have to follow a recipe chronologically. So while you've got something boiling on the stove, meanwhile, you can attack something else. You can get some chopping done. And it's just for efficiency's sake. Make sure you read through and see if there are any meanwhiles that you can attack while other things are working. Right. You yeah. also share some favorite drinks in here. Um, and I saw this one, which looked intriguing, toasted milk and honey margarita. Tell us what's in that. So that's people always comment on that one. That's definitely one of the more unusual recipes. So that's um, it's a margarita that's a little bit creamier in nature, which is definitely different. Um, it is built on basically a simple syrup of sweetened condensed milk that you cook on the stovetop, and that toasts it a bit, almost like if you were browning butter. It's a similar concept, and that that adds a really kind of nutty um, note and undertone to the finished drink, which is really good. Right. I know, yeah. I know there's one pan that you say you would never be without. What, what is uh, that? The cast iron skillet. <laughs> <laughs> I would imagine you refer to that one. Right, that's what I read. So what's yep. so special about the cast iron skillet? I have one too and I love it, but what's so special about it? Well, they just, I love anything that gets better with time. I mean, I find that such, that's such a lovable quality. They're just so durable. They're just really um, reliable kitchen workhorses that you can use for so many different things. So I think for that reason, I just, I just love mine. And it's always sitting on top of my stove. It never mm. leaves. Yeah. Yeah. And so when you're talking to people about Appalachian cooking, um, what, what do you want them to know? about it because, they, you know, like I said, I was really surprised to find mussels in there for some reason. I don't know why. <laughs> well, the mussels themselves are not traditionally Appalachian. Uh, okay. I would say it's, it's the, the, um, the components of that recipe that I've added it, like the moonshine is the part of that recipe that pulls in that Appalachian tradition. And I think with this book specifically, I think what I'm trying to show is that Appalachian uh, people and Appalachian cooking is more than meets the eye. And I think there's more to the traditional stereotypical story that we're so often given. It's a place filled with diverse people, with um, diverse interests, and it's evolved a lot. Um, and I just wanted to kind of bring an element of that into this book to show some different things and that it's not all just down home, old fashioned um, country recipes. It's that, but then it's a lot more too. So right. that's kind of what I was trying to accomplish with this book. Yeah. Well, job well done. It certainly oh, made my you. mouth water when I was flipping. <laughs> doing it again <laughs> right now, right? Well, really appreciate that. But I, I know our listeners can find out uh, more about you at your website. Do you want to give that out? It's your um, your blog. Sure, sure. My blog is Harvest and Honey, and it's just harvestandhoney.com. Okay, and lots of great tips up there too. Uh, thank yeah. you so much for being with us. Really appreciate it, Lauren. Oh, thank you so much for having me.
And my guest, Lauren Angelucci McDuffie, her book, Smoke Root, Roots, Mountain Harvest, uh, Recipes and Stories Inspired by My Appalachian Home. Quite a mouthful there, but we got it out. All right, we're going to take a very quick break. We'll be right back. You're listening to Conversations Live with Vicki St. Clair. 180 over 111, and I had a stroke. I couldn't speak or walk. 150 over 90, and I had a stroke. This is what high blood pressure sounds like. You might not feel its symptoms, but the results from a stroke are far from silent. Get back on your treatment plan or talk with your doctor to create a plan that works for you. Go to loweryourhbp.org. Head to toe, everything's changed. Brought to you by the American Stroke Association, American Medical Association, and the Ad Council. This is Martha Norwalk. Every Sunday morning, beginning at 9 a.m., thanks in part to Anti-Ikipu, we cover the world of animals. This week, May 26th, it's Bioenergetic Synchronization Technique Sunday with Dr. Nels Rasmussen and his sister Linda, also a best practitioner in the studio. They helped listeners and callers with behavior, emotional, or physical problems. On Martha Norwalk's Animal World, Sunday morning, 9 a.m. to noon, right here on Alternative Talk, AM 1150. Hi, this is Vicki St. Clair. You know, despite the bad news we hear every day, there are people and organizations focused on making a difference. And one of those organizations is right here, the Seattle Beagle Rescue. It's dedicated to saving homeless beagles, placing them with loving, committed families. Beagles arrive at Seattle Beagle Rescue from shelters, from the streets, and from private homes. And because it's a volunteer-run organization, they depend entirely on the kind hearts and generosity of the community. Learn how you can make a difference by helping to save beagles, go to Facebook at Seattle Beagle Rescue or call 425-381-3792. That's 425-381-3792. Coming up June 3rd on Conversations Live with Vicki St. Clair. Successful people know it's important to recharge and reboot. If you find yourself delaying vacations because they're too stressful or you dread the amount of work you'll come back to, Aline Segura shares how to manage your time and energy to make sure sure you take a restorative break. And if fear of flying is your excuse, Captain Tom's helped hundreds of people overcome anxiety and panic attacks. Catch us live on Mondays at noon Pacific and again Fridays at 6 a.m. Find more details at conversationslive.net. Conversations Live with Vicki St. Clair. Innovative business leaders know to advertise here. Learn how affordable at conversationslive.net. Some people know a good thing when they hear it. Alternative Talk 1150. And welcome back, everyone. Welcome back. You're listening to Conversations Live with Vicki St. Clair. Uh, coming up next, we're talking with Jody Helmer. She's a journalist who writes about food, gardening, farming, the environment, and sustainable living. Her works appeared in Entrepreneur, National Geographic Traveler, Health, and more. And she's the author of five books, including The Green Year and Farm Fresh Georgia. And today we're talking about her new book just released. It's called Growing Your Own Tea Garden, the guide to growing and harvesting flavorful teas in your backyard. Jody Helmer, welcome. Welcome. Thank you so much for having me. And uh, you're joining us from Skype today. Uh, so yes. um, we, I want to just dive straight into this because it made me laugh when I read this. You, you said uh, when you're not writing... Uh, you're a writing teacher, doggy mama, beekeeper, veggie grower, vintage needlework collector, goat snuggler, crafter, wanderer, napper, eater, and hermit. <laughs> that about sums up my life, yes. <laughs> well, it sounds like a pretty good life. It sounds like a life you've, you've uh, made good for yourself. 
Absolutely. Yes. I really like it. I love living out in the middle of nowhere with all the animals and the big gardens. It's wonderful. Yeah. And since you have so many roles, you say uh, you've managed to build a, a freelance career by writing about them and, uh, and other things that uh, pique your curiosity. So when did, when did you start writing and, and how? Oh, that's a great question. I have been a full-time freelancer since 2002, and I fell into it, really. I met a group of women at a local publication in Portland, Oregon. I used to live there and was looking for work while volunteering at this magazine. And someone said to me, why don't you freelance? You're basically doing that now. You're just not getting paid for it because the magazine had no budget. And I said, well, that doesn't seem like a real job. And um, the woman said, no, it is a real job. You can really make a living at this. And I wasn't working at the time. We had just moved to Portland. And I thought, well, what have I got to lose? And there so I go. gave it a go. And I've been freelancing ever since. There you go. And so yeah. what was it that drew you to teas? What, why did you want to write a book about a, a tea garden? Because it's one thing to enjoy a cup of tea <laughs> and another thing to write a book about it. Absolutely. So as I said in the book, I grew up drinking tea with my grandmother and it was a, a really special ritual for the two of us and had long been a tea drinker and was and also a gardener. And I was literally in the garden center one day and I was standing in the herb aisle and realized that a lot of the herbs that I was looking at were very similar to the tea bags that were in my cupboard. And I thought, well, maybe there's something here. And so like every good journalist, what I did was pitched a story about it. And I wrote a story about how to grow your own tea garden for Charlotte Home and Garden Magazine. I live in Charlotte, North Carolina. And it was a short little article. And I interviewed a bunch of experts. I tried a bunch of recipes. And I thought, you know, I think there's something bigger here. And so that story ended up growing into the book proposal that I sent to this publisher. And they bought the book. Yeah, interesting. So, and I was disappointed to learn that the English did not invent tea. (laughs) I am so sorry that that was a sad realization for you. But yes, the English did not invent tea. Well, we were Um, actually quite late adopters. I I read in your book that the earliest (laughs) records of tea date back to uh, 2732 B.C., and yes. uh, the British uh, didn't adopt it until 1657, which is quite a while That's later. That's right. So you may not have been the um, inventors of tea or the creators, finders of tea, but you certainly have perfected the art of tea. So we'll, we'll give you that. There we go. So tell us about um, how you put this book together. Uh, it, it, you talk about um, various uh, things that we can grow in our garden. I mean, everything from catnip chickweed, bearberry, bee balm, and so many things. I mean, were you experimenting along the way while you were writing this? I was experimenting along the way. I had a lot of odd things growing in my garden, and I had a lot of um, sort of foraging to do to collect some of these things. Fortunately, it's not hard to find things like chickweed, clover, and dandelions where I am. So there was a lot of experimentation. There was a lot of research that went into it because honestly, some of these plants, when I started out, it did not occur to me that I would want to put them into a tea. So sage is a good example. I love sage as an herb, but I didn't think it would make a great tea. Um, It's probably not one of my favorites, but it is very drinkable. And I think people who like the flavor will really like it. So 
Yes, there was a lot going on in my kitchen during the time I was writing this book. Yeah, I was surprised here that to read that 80% of Americans are tea drinkers. And nationwide, we consume 84 billion servings of tea. That's almost 4 billion gallons uh, in 2016. That's really quite a lot of tea when you look at it that way. It is a lot of tea. And I think that there's two things that are happening. Millennials are very interested in tea um, and they're very interested in tea as an artisan beverage. So small batch, local, we're seeing a lot of tea plantations popping up across the U.S., which I think is really interesting, especially in the Southeast. Um, and so there's a, I think there's a resurgence in people's interest in this ancient beverage and how we can modernize it for our, our tastes today. And not everything we call tea is actually tea. You talk about, is it tisane? It is, is tisanes, yes. So tea, to be truly tea, it needs to come from the Camellia sinensis plant, which is the tea plant. And that's the plant that all tea comes from, white, green, black, and oolong, comes from the same plant. It's just harvested and processed differently. Um, the rest of the things that I still refer to as tea, even though it's not accurate, are made from herbs. And when they're made from herbs and not the Camellia sinensis plant, they're actually tisanes or tisans. Interesting. And I was I was surprised uh, about uh, how long tea bags have been around because I remember them being quite a new invention when I was a kid, but apparently not. I'm not that old. <laughs> they were around, <laughs> around 1901 when the first tea bags came out. So it's kind of interesting. So absolutely, you needed to, they needed to find a way to keep those pesky herbs from escaping the cup. Yeah. So if we were interested in starting a tea garden, where do we begin? Obviously, we want to look at what flavors interest us. But where do we begin uh, with with getting things ready to build a tea garden? So I would say that really you begin with what flavors you like. Um, I really like mint. And although as a plant, it's a little problematic because it's quite invasive. It's actually a great plant to grow in a pot or container garden um, if you can keep it clipped. And it, you can start harvesting the leaves right away. There are many, many different varieties of mint. And really, it's as simple as it can be as simple as just growing some herbs clipping the fresh leaves first thing in the morning when the oils are the strongest um, and the flavor is the best, and then washing them, chopping them up to release that flavor and putting them in either a tea bag or, you know, the metal tea balls mm -hmm. um, and steeping it and drinking. You can really have a tea garden that simply um, with one herb and, a, you know, and turning it into a cup of tea. You can get really advanced if you want to try something, if you're an avid gardener and you want to try something a little more difficult, um, I and you live in the right zone, because you need to know your gardening zone, um, you could absolutely grow Camellia sinensis and start trying to make tea from that. Mm. And so to you, what makes a perfect cup of tea? We were laughing before oh. the break that you're from Canada, I'm from England, and we, now we live in North America, we have to always ask for Hot tea, hot tea. <laughs> yes. I, you know, I think it depends. I am a strong black tea in the morning person, and I like it to steep for a long time. Um, but, you know, now that it's summer, it's already in the 90 degrees uh, range in the southeast where I live. And so now I'm happy to have something that's, you know, a little more fruity and flavorful and iced, although not 
traditional sweet tea. But And then at night, I love, you know, something that's really mild, like a chamomile, I think is a great evening tea. And it's so delicious, brewed fresh from the garden. But I think it's all about getting the water temperature right and steeping it just long enough that it's right for you. And it t- that takes some experimentation, but it's really delicious experimentation. Yeah. I love that you have um, you have samples of tea gardens here for, say, example, uh, immune boosting tea garden, a tummy troubles tea garden, uh, a headache tea garden, relaxing tea garden. Um, tell us about why you included those in here. I think there are so many potential ways to make your own tea garden. So you can grow the Camellia sinensis plant. You can grow any number of herbs. And I didn't want people who were new to this to feel overwhelmed. And so I thought if I created a few garden plans that let people think, oh, what I'm really interested in is tea that's good for digestion, or I have a lot of shade, what kind of tea can I grow in the shade, or I get a lot of headaches, what's good for that? It would help them narrow down the options for plants in their own tea garden. So it's designed to provide a little bit of inspiration if you're not quite sure where to start or if you want to do a specific theme. Mm. And this is a good one here, fatigue fighting tea garden for people who want to give up caffeine but still want a jolt of energy. Uh, you talk about the plants you'd, you'd put in the, in the ground, chickweed, ginseng, holy basil, and licorice. Yes, yes, those are all really good. Um, so ginseng and licorice are, of course, roots. Um, chickweed is, as its name suggests, a weed. Um, and... Holy basil is a great, fast-growing, easy-to-grow herb. And so you can um, put all of those in your garden and harvest them in very different ways. That's also a nice way to get used to doing a little foraging, growing some herbs, and then also harvesting roots instead of leaves. Mm. Well, you know what? I I have fantasies about having a tea garden. It will probably never happen, but I still (laughs) thoroughly enjoyed reading your book, and I certainly enjoy drinking tea so uh, i appreciate you being with us today a final quick 20 second thought you'd like to leave our listeners with try it i mean if if you are a tea drinker and you're curious about what it takes to grow your own tea buy an herb or two and just try them out i think you'll be surprised at how bright and fresh the flavors are compared to the teas that you get at the supermarket lovely and of course buying your book would help it's called growing your own tea garden the guide to growing and harvesting flavorful teas in your backyard and you can find out much more about jody and her work at jodyhelmer.com and that brings us right to the end of today's show so i thank you for being with us uh we'll see you next week until then live well live strong Radio is very competitive. Shows soar in popularity and then flame out. Sometimes, however, a real connection is made with an audience, and success blooms year after year. For over a decade, Conversations Live with Vicki St. Clair has built a loyal following thanks to inspiring and stimulating conversation. Longevity, loyalty, exclusivity. Smart advertisers seek it out. With Vicki's valuable audience, the search is over. Discover the affordable, effective ways to advertise your business. Log on to Conversations Live. Live.net. That's conversationslive.net today.